0: Hey, friends, Elisa Childers here. I am so excited to bring you today's guest, Dr. Frank Turek. What is it like to go onto hostile college campuses and present evidence for Christianity? What does it mean that atheists need God to make their case? We're going to talk about those things with Frank and more on today's podcast. My guest today is Dr. Frank Turek, a speaker and author of four books, including the book that I always recommend to people who want a really good starter apologetics book, and that's called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, which is co-written with Norm Geisler. Frank presents evidence for Christianity in churches, high schools, and secular college campuses that are often hostile to the message that he's bringing. He has also debated several prominent atheists, including Christopher Hitchens and David Silverman, who's the president of American Atheists. He hosts a weekly radio program called Cross-Examined with Frank Turek, and that airs on 186 stations every Saturday morning. But you can also find that content on his free app, the Cross-Examined app. And most importantly, Frank is the reason that I even have a blog and a podcast. So if you listen to this podcast or you read my blog... You can thank Frank or you can blame Frank, depending on uh, how much you like the content that you find here on this site. So, Frank, thanks so much for being with me today.
1: They're all sending me emails of thanks.
0: Uh, Okay, good.
1: So, they love you. Come on. We know that.
0: <laughs> well, I went to your cross-examined instructor academy uh, a couple years ago in 2016, and I've told you that it was a it was a life changing experience for me. Obviously, and uh, this year's CIA is in August. It's August 16th through the 18th in Plano, Texas. So for any listeners who may be interested in apologetics or even interested in teaching apologetics. On even a local level at their church or even with a broader audience. Frank, what is the Cross-Examined Instructor Academy?
1: It's a place where we try and train people how to better present the evidence for Christianity and how to answer questions more effectively. And we've been doing it for over 10 years now. And it's not just me. It's Greg Kokel. It's Jay Warner Wallace, Brett Kunkel, uh, it's Bobby Conway, Richard Howe, Sean McDowell, now Natasha Crane is part of the teaching team, Mm -hmm. Jorge Gill. So we have a lot of people who can help uh, you if you're interested in presenting this kind of material on how to present it better and how to deal more effectively with objections and questions. So it's really more of a place you can come, not just, just, easy for me to say, not just to get content, But also to get tactics on how to present. That's really what it's all about.
0: Yeah, and it's really what launched my ministry. So when I first went to CIA, I had no intention of ever starting a blog. I just thought there are enough blogs in the world, but part of what you do at CIA is you present a talk and then you you give the talk to whatever instructor you happen to get that day. So my very first time, I had prepared my little talk. I had no idea if, you know, I was even any good at this at all and then in walks Jay Warner Wallace for my first instructor, like probably in my mind the most intimidating instructor I could have gotten. And then the right. second day in walks Frank Turek. So I get the two in my mind, the two most intimidating instructors. But um, it was just really cool because at the end of my uh, couple of days there, you said, you know, you should start a blog. And I just said, well, if Frank Turk tells you to start a blog, you start a blog. That's just what you do, right?
1: <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah. Because yeah. everybody does what I say. No, but I'm glad you did. And I'm glad you started the podcast as well. That's just a, another way of communicating to
0: people. Yeah, that was a surprise to me, too.
1: Yeah, well, it's been doing very well, as I understand it, isn't it?
0: I, I think so. It's been really fun for me. It's been uh, a way for me to—I think there's, there's some material that just translates better if you're going to just talk about it rather than writing it. So I kind of figure out which I think is going to work better, and it's such so just fun to have that— extra uh, platform to be able to get uh, the information out. So for anybody who's listening who might be interested in coming to CIA, I just can't recommend it highly enough. You can go to crossexamined.org and fill out an application and go from there. It's just really worth it. It's definitely something you want to check out if you're interested in apologetics. So Frank, one of the things that intrigues me about your ministry is that you visit a lot of college campuses, which for some of us would strike terror in our hearts, but you don't only present evidence for Christianity, you also take questions from the audience. And often these questions are coming from budding atheists or students who find the things in the Bible to be outdated or, or even immoral. So you're fielding a lot of hostile questions. So I'm curious, what are some of the most common questions that you're asked on college campuses?
1: Well, you can see a lot of them because we film everything we do on a college campus now and uh, the questions we we put on YouTube. Uh, so on our YouTube channel, I think they can find that at crossexamine.org. They can see all these questions. Uh, and they can also get an email from us once a week. If they subscribe, if they go to crossexamine.org and click on subscribe, they can see these. I mean, these interactions are anywhere from two minutes to say seven minutes, uh, these questions and answers. And as I reflect on it, Elisa, uh, I think that probably 70 or maybe even 80% of the questions that we get are in some way related to morality. Hmm. Uh, let me just give you an example, a few examples of the questions that we get routinely. Uh, if there is a good God, why is there evil? Uh, why did people create, or why did God create people He knew would go to hell? What about those that have never heard? Um, why? How can Jesus be the only way? Uh, what about God killing the Canaanites in the Old Testament? Uh, Christians are bigots, or they're backward, or they're anti-science, if you really reflect on those questions, those are some of the big ones we get over and over again, they're in some way related to morality. There's a moral standard being assumed by the question, and the idea here is, is that in some way either Christianity or Christians don't live up to that moral standard. So I typically try and point out, well, you're assuming a moral standard here. If you're an atheist, where are you getting this moral standard by which to judge Christianity or Christians as being wrong on these issues? So most of them, or at least a vast majority of them, have something to do with morality.
0: That's kind of an important point, is that all of these questions in some way are rooted in an assumption that good and evil exist. and so. That's a big uh, premise of some of your books as well. So how is the existence of morality actually evidence for the existence of God? How is accusing God of being evil actually evidence that he exists?
1: Yeah, it's a great question, because if you think about it, if somebody ever says, well, there's too much evil in the world, so I can't believe in a good God. I think what you need to do is stop and ask a question. And this is these are the kind of questions we teach at CIA. And Greg Kochel is so famous for teaching in his book, Tactics. And the question you want to ask is, what do you mean by evil? And typically, when you ask that question, people aren't going to give you a definition. They're going to give you examples. They're going to say, well, murder is evil or rape is evil or theft is evil. And at that point, you need to say, well, I agree, but I'm not asking you for examples of evil. I'm asking you for a definition of evil. Mm. And the problem is, is when you ask that question of people, they're going to find it very difficult to give a definition of evil without appealing to a standard of good, because evil doesn't exist on its own. Evil is actually a lack or a privation in good. Evil is like cancer. Uh, If you take all the cancer out of a body, you've got a better body. If you take all the body out of cancer, you've got nothing. In other words, evil doesn't exist on its own. It only exists as a lack or a privation or uh, a, some kind of deviation from good. It can only exist if good exists. Now, here's the problem for the atheist. And that is, good can't exist unless God exists, because by definition, what we mean by good is God's nature. Now, we can argue over who is this God, but what we can't say is good exists absent of God Because if the atheists are right, if we're just molecular machines, if all that exists are materials, then there's no such thing as good. Good is an immaterial quality or an immaterial value or an immaterial entity. It's not something made of molecules. So the the big problem for atheists is is they have no way to justify anything being evil if there's no way – To ground good in anything other but God, anything other but God, and there is no way to ground good in anything other but God.
0: So in your debates with atheists, have you found that they are hesitant to admit this or do they try to dance around it? What's the general response uh, with a, you know, like a David Silverman or Christopher Hitchens when you have the opportunity to kind of ask further questions and, and, and sort of get to the root of this? What's their response?
1: Well, Christopher Hitchens, God bless his soul. Um, he da- he danced around it and wouldn't answer the question.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, when when I tried to get him to define evil, he gave me an example. I said, what is evil? He said, religion, you know, and everybody <laughs> laughed because he's, he was so good rhetorically. But that wasn't the question. The question isn't give me an example of evil. The question is define evil, and he wouldn't do it. Uh, David Silverman, uh, by the way, uh, who used to be the president of the American Atheist, uh, he, he was fired recently, unfortunately. Oh. Oh. But in any event— Um, Silverman, and you can see all this on our website, Silverman finally admitted that since he he believes atheism is true, there's nothing objectively right or wrong. And he admitted then, therefore, the Holocaust wasn't really wrong. David Silverman, being ethnically a Jew, tried to say that the Holocaust was not really wrong. And my point to him was, David, if your worldview causes you to believe the Holocaust was not wrong, then you just have the wrong worldview yeah. because you already you already know the Holocaust is wrong. You don't you, you, I mean that's more obvious to you than atheism is true. So why would you say atheism is true? Why would you take the less obvious position that atheism is true when you have evidence that the more obvious position is, it's wrong to murder innocent people in a Holocaust. You already know that's true. So there's a problem with your worldview. There's not a problem with your moral intuition that murdering Jews is wrong. There's a problem with your worldview, which tries to tell you murdering Jews isn't wrong.
0: And and one of the things that I've heard brought up when this gets discussed is sometimes people will say something like, well, your argument about morality fails because everybody has a different idea of what's what's good and evil. So how would you respond to that?
1: Well, I would say, first of all, that's not true. But secondly, even if everybody uh, agreed, let's say, for example, an example William Lane Craig gives, he says, let's suppose that the Nazis won World War II And uh, brainwashed everybody to believe that murdering Jews, homosexuals, gypsies, and Jehovah's Witnesses was right. It was the right thing to do. Would it be right? And if you ask that question, just about everyone's going to say, well, no, it wouldn't be right." right. What are they doing when they say that? They're appealing to an objective moral standard. The moral law does not require that every human being agrees on every moral question. The, it, it did, in fact it doesn't require agreement at all all it requires is that there's one thing morally wrong out there just one
0: mm.
1: say it's wrong to torture babies for fun or it's wrong to murder people in a holocaust or it's wrong to murder uh, homosexuals in a Holocaust or it's wrong to uh, say crucify children like Isis is doing now if that if any of those things are really wrong then God exists.
0: Right, because it's not just my opinion versus your opinion. We're appealing to a standard that's higher than our own opinions. Right. And that's, I think that's the thing that, that. Uh, honestly, it's interesting as I teach apologetics to high schoolers, this is the most difficult t- thing to convince them of. I think it's because of the culture they're growing up in, is that even when I bring up really horrible examples, uh, a lot of times, even in churches, Christian high school kids have a hard time admitting that there is objective morality, which is which is really interesting. Well, it,
1: it, is, it is interesting, but when you think about it, just take the culture right now. The culture tries to claim uh, that, say, opposing same-sex marriage is wrong, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, right. they have their own moral precepts or or opposing uh, someone who wants to engage in uh, a, a, a a transformation, uh, same-sex, or I, I should say a, a sex change operation. That would be wrong. Or counseling people out of homosexual practice is wrong, that's what our culture says right. now. Everybody has moral absolutes that they believe are true. They don't think it's relative that their positions or that their positions are relative. They think they're true. Well, by what standard are they judging that to be uh, true wow. and right? So you can just ask them. You know, any every culture has their moral absolutes. So to, to believe that everything's relative is is completely. Um, Laid bare to be false by the idea that every moral position or every culture has some certain moral precepts that they think are really right. Now they may be wrong about those, um, but everybody agrees in some sort of absolute morality, some some sort of objective morality. They may not have a source for it, but they believe in it.
0: And this proves out with the whole idea of tolerance in our culture right now. How the the people who are kind of like the tolerance police, like you, will be tolerant. Oh, wait, except unless you're a conservative Christian, that's right. <laughs> and then it's okay to not be tolerant. <laughs> in the name of
1: inclusion, tolerance, and diversity, you're excluded.
0: Exactly. Um, and so, you will not be tolerated. <laughs> exactly. So, Frank, what is the most difficult question you've ever been asked? Have you ever been on a college campus and just really got thrown for a loop with a question?
1: Well, when you do this long enough, you realize that you'll get the same 20 questions in most places, Right. And most of them are related are related to morality, as I mentioned earlier. the The questions aren't necessarily hard to answer; they're just hard to answer in two minutes. Mm. That's the problem. The problem is really a time factor. Like somebody asks you, "Well, why would why would God allow evil to occur?" Well, that's that's not a two minute answer. That's a that's a two semester answer,
0: mm.
1: right? I mean, you you take entire courses on that. And so all you can do is what I love the way John Lennox puts it. He says, I don't have a complete answer for you. I have a doorway to an answer. So here's my doorway. Here are a couple of things to consider why God might allow evil. Right. Well, he allows it because of free will and uh, he allows it because he can bring a greater good from it. And he allows it because sometimes we only look up when we're on our back. Right. Mm. When things are going really well, we might not look to God at all. But when things are things are bleak, we somehow get 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 real interested in God. So, I mean, there are several reasons. He does it to build character in it, to build to, to build virtue, as the scriptures declare, say, Romans five and and uh, James one. I mean, these are I mean, you can give some answers, but you can't give all the answers and you don't have all the answers. Yeah. So it's really difficult to answer questions in a short period of time. That's the problem.
0: Well, your latest book has a really intriguing title. It's called Stealing from God, Why Atheists Need God to Make Their Case. Uh, What does that mean? Explain that to us a little bit.
1: Yeah, I've noticed that when atheists are arguing there is no God, they're actually stealing aspects of reality to argue against God, yet those aspects of reality wouldn't exist unless God existed. So they have to steal from God in order to argue against him. And the book is oriented around an acrostic, crimes, C-R-I-M-E-S. And let, let I'll just give you one example. We talked about it briefly earlier. The E in crime stands for evil. When atheists are claiming there's too much evil in the world, they're actually presupposing a standard of good, as I mentioned earlier. But that standard of good wouldn't exist unless God existed. So when they're saying there's too much evil and that disproves God, they're act, they actually have to assume God exists in order to say God doesn't exist. <laughs> So they're stealing from God while they're arguing against him.
0: Well, in chapter two, you deal with reason about our, our ability to think things through and to reason them out. And you argue that if atheism is true, then all arguments for anything fail. So if atheism is true, we can't argue any kind of logic or any, any kind of, of point. So unpack that for us. What, what does that mean?
1: Well, when I say atheists, I'm taking the very popular view today among most atheists. This might not be the case of all atheists, but it's probably the vast majority view of atheists is that materialism is true, that there is no immaterial realm, that everything's made of molecules, uh, that we're just moist robots, that every thought we have is the result of, of the laws of physics, you know, natural laws over which we have no control. Well, if that's really the case, then why should we believe anything we think? Why should we believe atheism is true or evolution is true or or there is no God? Why should we believe any of that if every thought we have is the result of the laws of physics? We're not really reasoning. We're just reacting. We're no different than a Coke can fizzing, as Doug Wilson said in his debate with Christopher Hitchens. Hmm. We're moist robots. So I think if if materialism is true, there's no way to know it's true. Because, again, we don't come to conclusions through rationality. We come to conclusions because the laws of physics drove us to those conclusions. In fact, there was a, uh, a evolutionist many years ago. His name was Haldane. And he recognized this problem with his own worldview. He said something like this. I'm paraphrasing. He said, he said if my thought processes are completely controlled by the laws of physics— by the motion of atoms in my brain, then I have no reason to suppose that my thought processes are true. And I have no reason to suppose that the atoms in my brain are causing my thoughts. Hmm. In other words, it's a self-defeating proposition to say that we're just moist robots, that there is no immaterial realm. And as soon as atheists try and open their mouths and try and come up with a logical thought That atheism is true. They have to steal these immaterial realities known as the laws of logic and our ability to reason in order to do so. So they're stealing from God while arguing against him.
0: There's a story that John Lennox tells about interacting with uh, an evolutionary biologist, I think it was. And he was asking this evolutionary biologist, if, if all we are are just the product of an unguided uh, evolution, like there's no intelligence behind this. It's just unguided, completely random, and here we are, and and you've come to that uh, conclusion with your mind. Mm-hmm. You know why would you trust that? Right. And and it's and it's interesting too. Even coming back to what we were talking about earlier with the the moral argument about how to say something is good or bad or fair or unfair assumes a moral standard. Well, you have to use your mind to do that. Mm-hmm. And and so it's, if, if materialism is true, if atheistic materialism is true, then then any kind of argument you even try to make that something's good or evil uh, fails, because we, we can't trust that process without there being any kind of intelligent design behind it.
1: It's, ir- it's, it's ironic, isn't it, Elisa, that the very people who claim their beacons of reason have made reason impossible by their own ideology.
0: Right, right.
1: That's the ironic thing. They claim to be the reasonable ones when they've defeated our very ability to reason by claiming that we're just molecular machines.
0: Right. One of my favorite quotes from your book, I've actually posted this on Facebook uh, a time or two, is this, you say, to say that a scientist can disprove the existence of God is like saying a mechanic can disprove the existence of Henry Ford. I've actually used this in my when I when I kind of teach through basic apologetics with young people. I use this quote quite a bit, and so obviously the imagery that that brings up is is somebody tinkering around with with a car and figuring out how everything works, and then boldly declaring, "Okay, I figured out how all of this works. Therefore, Henry Ford doesn't exist." Exactly. So, <laughs> how how does someone's worldview? affect the way they approach science? How does it affect the way they actually do science?
1: Well, in many cases, it has to do with their interpretation of the data. And there's a a chapter in the book, Stealing from God, where I talk about this. In fact, the chapter is called Science Doesn't Say Anything Scientists Do. Because Mm -hmm. all data needs to be gathered and all data needs to be interpreted. And who does that? Well, science doesn't do that. Science is not... uh, is, is a word we use to describe the process we go through to discover cause and effect relationships. But who discovers the cause and effect relationships? Scientists do. And when scientists look at data, sometimes their worldview will cause them to come to the wrong conclusion. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, uh, many scientists believe there is no immaterial realm, that atheism is true, that materialism must be uh, true, and therefore they interpret every piece of evidence through that lens. So, for example, uh, take uh, were human beings created or did they evolve? Uh, and uh, they will look at the data, like say Richard Dawkins. He was once asked by by Rich uh, by uh, Philip Johnson, who wrote a seminal book years ago called Darwin on Trial, mm-hmm. and he, Philip Johnson asked Richard Dawkins, the great evolutionist, this question. He said, give me your best evidence for macroevolution. And Dawkins replied, the best evidence we have for macroevolution is the similarity of the genetic code. And that shows we have a common ancestor. Well, you know, Dawkins could be right about that. That a common genetic code gives us, or the reason we have a common genetic code is because we have a common ancestor. But what Interpretation is he ruling out in advance that could also be the reason for the common genetic code. Well, it could be a common designer rather than a common ancestor. Those two are equally plausible. In fact, where do codes come from?
0: Hmm.
1: Where you know, in 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 my view, whenever you have a code, you have a coder. Whenever you have a program, you have a programmer. And uh, so you you might ask the question: Where do codes come from to begin with? (laughs) Right. Uh, so what, what Dawkins is doing when he looks at the evidence, since he's a materialist and an atheist, he rules out the other possibility, because the two possibilities we have for common genetic code are common ancestor or common creator, common designer. He rules out common designer from the beginning. So his only option is a common ancestor. Now, again, he could be right, but you, you what you, you, have, you have to do is you, you need to get other evidence to see whether – he's right with his common ancestor interpretation or whether he's wrong because there's more evidence for a common designer. And when you look at other evidence, uh, I think you see that a common designer is a better explanation than a common ancestor, but his philosophy, his worldview won't allow him to go down that road.
0: So it's basically like uh, science, you know, generally is the search for causes and Mm -hmm. basically everybody's got the same evidence, but everybody's gonna look at that evidence and interpret that evidence, and really that takes philosophy, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, in fact, uh, that's the problem. As Einstein famously said, he said, the man of science is a poor philosopher. Well, the problem here is, is that if you're a poor philosopher, you may come to bad scientific conclusions because in order to interpret the data, you have to bring philosophical presuppositions to the table. And as I mentioned a minute ago, the philosophical presupposition someone like Richard Dawkins brings to the table is that there is no intelligence out there, so he can't. His philosophy won't allow him to even consider intelligence as a possible cause. Uh, so, yeah. and, and by the way, the, the quote that you you quoted earlier about um, to say that a scientist can disprove the existence of God is like saying that a mechanic can disprove the existence of Henry Ford. That's trading on an illustration that our friend John Lennox made. Mm. John Lennox asks his students a question. He says, suppose you have a Model T in front of you. I'm going to give you two possible causes for the Model T, but you can only pick one. And so Lennox asks his students, what caused the Model T, Henry Ford or the laws of internal combustion? Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And his students say, well, Dr. Lennox, you actually need both. You need Henry Ford to create the Model T, and then you need the laws of internal combustion to stay what they are in order for the Model T to work, because if the laws of internal combustion changed every 10 minutes, you wouldn't even have a Model T. And yeah. Lennox would say to his students, good insight. Why can't the atheist see this? That the more you study the Model T and the more you know the laws of internal combustion, that should in no way tell you there's no Henry Ford. And And this is our problem, I think, in our culture today, Elisa. We think that the more we understand how technology works, the more we understand how the universe works, that somehow we think that there's no creator or sustainer of the universe. Well, that doesn't Mm -hmm. follow. (laughs) Right. I mean, you can know everything you can know about the Model T. That should never tell you there's no Henry Ford. In fact, the more you study it, the more you realize there must be a creator of this thing. There must be a designer of this thing. So I, I, I don't, I don't, I guess people don't understand the distinction between how things operate, which is how a a Model T operates, from how a thing originated. Right. How it operates is by natural forces. How it originated is by an intelligent designer.
0: Yeah. And Ed Fazer, who I think has been on your show a few times, Yes. uh, in his amazing book that everybody needs to get called The Last Superstition, A Refutation of the New Atheism. He notes that this is really what's at the bottom of the so-called war between science and religion. He's saying it's not really a scientific or a theological dispute. He, this is a war between two rival philosophical worldviews. And um, he goes on to quote uh, Richard Lewinton, who's a biologist, uh, who I think he's an atheist, isn't he? Yes. Yes. And I think you have this quote in your, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist right. book as well, but but Lewinton's basically admitting this bias. He says, our willingness to accept scientific claims that are against common sense is the key to an understanding of the real struggle between science and the supernatural. We take the side of science in spite of the patent absurdity of some of its contracts, constructs, in spite of its failure to fulfill many of its extravagant promises of health and life in spite of the tolerance of the scientific community for unsubstantiated just so stories because we have a prior commitment, a commitment to materialism. And then he goes on to basically admit, he says, uh, materialism is absolute for we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. So here's an atheist biologist basically admitting we have to have this worldview because otherwise we would have to admit God.
1: Right, And I think underneath that for many, not all, but for many, Elisa, is this. Um, Ed is saying, Ed Fazer' is saying it's a, it's a philosophical uh, a philosophical war, not not so much a war about science. And I think he's right about that. But underneath the philosophy is something we talked about at the top of the program, and that is morality. Mm. because a lot of these people don't want God to exist because then there's a moral authority in the universe. But that's greater than them, and they don't want to answer to that. And, and many people will admit this. I mean, Christopher Hitchens essentially admitted it when he said he thinks God's a cosmic North Korean dictator peering in on our sex lives. In other words, Hitchens didn't want there to be a God. He didn't call himself an atheist. He called himself an anti-theist, just like, um, just like Lawrence Krauss, an anti-theist. It's not that he doesn't believe in God. Well, of course he doesn't believe in God, but he doesn't want there to be a God. That's why the question I always ask people is, if Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? And many atheists I've asked that question to on college campuses say no. They don't want it to be true. And they'll admit privately, well, it's a moral issue. I don't want there to be a God.
0: It all all does come back to that morality question, doesn't it? Yeah,
1: Yeah, because they want to be gods of their own lives. They're not on a truth quest or on a happiness quest.
0: Mm.
1: And they don't want there to be a God. Now, is this true of everybody? I can't say that. But it's true of a lot of people because I asked them. And
0: they admit <laughs> yeah, I so, would say you're, you're probably in a position to know better than anyone with all of the interactions you have with, with atheists and, and uh, agnostics and hostile questioners and all of that.
1: And I think Paul talks about this, too, in Romans chapter one, where he says, we suppress the truth and unrighteousness. In other words, we want to go our own way morally, and we don't want anybody to interfere, especially God.
0: Well, if you want more, the website is crossexamined.org. Frank's latest book, Stealing from God, Why Atheists Need God to Make Their Case, is just a fantastic book. I've read it twice. Uh, Just a a great resource for every Christian to have. Frank, thank you so much for being my guest today and just for all the great work that you're doing to spread the gospel and for being on the front lines, presenting all of this compelling evidence for Christianity uh, and just for furthering the cause of Christ.
1: Well, thank you so much for what you're doing, too, uh, Elisa. It's great having you on the team. And I'm glad you're blooming where you're planted there in the Nashville area. And if I could, I just want to remind everybody that if they download the app, the cross-examined app, two words in the app store, cross-examined, they'll not only get our radio program once a week, uh, they'll get quick answer section uh, that has some of the more common questions and answers regarding Christianity and also our TV show is, is streamed live there. That's right. So that's right. Uh, And then whenever we do a live college campus event, they can watch it right on their phone because we stream all that uh, not only on our website and on our Facebook page, the org Facebook page, but also on the app. So if they download that free app, Uh, They're going to get a lot of resources.
0: Definitely get that. That's one of the first apps I downloaded downloaded to my phone when I first discovered Apologetics, and it's just been a wealth of information ever since. And I I will say this, though. When you look for the cross-examined app in the App Store, there are actually—did you know this, Frank? There are two cross-examined apps, and one of them is run by an atheist. Did you know that? Yeah, I
1: know. Ours uh, is—it's two words in the App Store, cross-examined.
0: Okay, and it's the and, one uh, with the black, and it's got the—is it the red cross or a white cross?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a. It's
0: not the one with the bird. Don't get the one with the bird it's in the not cage Not the one with the bird. That's <laughs> right. Yeah,
1: it is a. Uh, it's got a cross in the X. You'll you'll see it. It's got That's a cross great. with the X. It's 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 black, and I got I got to look up my own logo. I look at it every day, but I don't even remember yet. Yeah, no,
0: it's, it's it's not coming to my mind either. But I. It's
1: a red. It's a red cross. Red with a, cross. A little a little drop of blood, on the org. You'll there see you it.
0: There you go. And yeah, because yeah, I was teaching a class and I recommended your app, and a lady came back to me the next week and said, "I'm really confused about this cross-examined app." And that's when she had downloaded the atheist one. Oh yeah. And so, um, so anyway, get that app cross and the website crossexamined.org. Frank, thanks so much.
1: All right, appreciate it, Lisa. See you.
0: If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, you can sign up to receive my posts by email by going to alisachilders.com and clicking the subscribe button, or simply subscribe to the Alisa Childers Podcast on iTunes. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app.